there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Mr. Bell did not know what I was going to be talking about this morning, but he could not have chosen a more appropriate scripture passage. I've entitled my talk, The Test of Love. And I want to read you a little story that I came across not very long ago. A story about a man who believed that God was calling him to leave everything and go with him into the desert. His name was Carlo Caretto. And the Lord said to him, it is not your acts and deeds that I want, but your prayer and your love. And so, very tired, Carlo found shade underneath a rock, having walked some distance in the desert. He had with him a bag of food, two blankets, and a tripod for a fire. The evening before, he, he laid, before he lay down, he laid one of the blankets on the sand and rolled up another one for a pillow and lay down for a rest and thought about the fact that the evening before he had been in a small village of ex-slaves. And an old slave by the name of Kada came trembling to him with cold. Carlo said, I thought of giving him my blanket, but I knew that I would need it at night. It gets very cold in the desert. But then I realized that my skin was not worth more than Kada's. The least I can do as a little brother of Jesus, which is what Carlo was calling himself, the least I can do as a little brother of Jesus is to give the man my blanket. But I didn't do it. He still had his two blankets with him. And that, during that rest, he dreamed that a rock fell on him, pinning him helplessly. And he thought, how long am I to remain here? And the Lord said to him, until you are capable of an act of perfect love. Was I close enough to my master, whose act of perfect love was Calvary, to follow him to Calvary for the salvation of my brethren? If I was capable of passing by a brother who was shivering with cold, how should I be capable of dying for him? I understood that I was lost. And I thought of the words of St. John of the Cross, in the end, you will be judged on love. I'm not able to deceive myself any longer, Carlo thought. The truth is, I did not give my blanket to Kada for fear of the cold night. That means that I love my own skin more than my brother's. While God's commandment is, love the life of others as you love your own. But even that belongs to the Old Testament. Have you thought about that verse in Leviticus 19.18? It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, 
but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Some of us may have forgotten that that was in the Old Testament as well as in the New. So that is a beginning, isn't it? A beginning of love. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself. But then the Lord Jesus makes it even more impossible. And he says that we are to love one another as I have loved you. And Carlo thought to himself, this is not only to give up the blanket, but to give up life itself. Living in our selfishness means stopping at human limits, preventing our own transformation into divine love. It's very difficult for us in our culture of today in which self-love is a very strong and pervasive emphasis. It's very difficult for us to think of love in the sense of sacrifice. The world has its own definitions of love. I've heard of young people getting married and writing their own, quote, vows, unquote. They don't usually seem to be vows. They seem to be descriptions of how they feel about each other. But sometimes, They've changed as long as we both shall live. They change one letter and make it as long as we both shall love. As though love is something that happens to us, and it's nice when it happens, and it's too bad when it evaporates, but that's the end of that. We don't find anything in God's word that describes love in terms like that, do we? Love is a decision. Love is a choice. Carlo had the choice to give the blanket or not to give the blanket to Kada, and his not giving the blanket convicted him of how thin, how feeble was his notion of love. And as I think of the word love, I think of four things that begin with the word S, and I'm certainly not going to try to cover all four of those things. But they're all four words would be almost unthinkable in today's climate, in our notions of politics and society and family and all of our relationships with people. We would hardly ever dream of talking about sacrifice, suffering, surrender, and servanthood. And I think that the test of love is first of all sacrifice and it's all those other things too. Suffering. Any father and mother know that when that first baby comes into your home it changes your life radically, drastically, and forever. And you have to start almost immediately the very day that that baby comes home from the hospital, recognizing the fact that there are sacrifices that are involved in being a parent. But you love that child, and even though at two o'clock in the morning it may seem like a terrible nuisance, there are more times of the day when you realize the gift, the tremendous gift that you have been given. But that sacrifice goes on, doesn't it? And when you look at that newborn child, 
you might or might not think of the fact that this tiny little package that has suddenly appeared in your arms will someday have the power to rake your soul with pain. And some of you know what that means. Suffering. Surrender. You have to surrender many things that you would consider essential in your life. I think of my father and how he surrendered his Saturday afternoons to his children. There were six of us in the family. I don't think my father ever went off by himself to do something that he would consider fun or necessary for a young man. We worked on chores on Saturday mornings in our family. We girls worked in the house and the boys worked outside with my father. But Saturday afternoons, we could almost always count on his taking us somewhere, usually for a walk someplace. We hardly ever went anywhere that cost money. Once in a while, we might go to a museum in Philadelphia. It might cost 25 cents. But I think of the simple fact that my father took it for granted that that was a part of his job. I don't remember any discussion about it. I certainly don't remember his ever talking about the fact that it was a sacrifice or a surrender of things that he would have liked to do. He was a father with a very serious commitment to fathering his six children. But living amidst the disease of self-culture and self-actualization and self-expression and self-love, which is a concept that has grasped the minds of millions of Christians because they hear it in their churches. You're supposed to learn to love yourself because you can't possibly love your neighbor until you begin to love yourself. I find in my Bible, in Ephesians 4, a very sharp distinction between the old self and the new self. I don't very often hear those distinctions mentioned. There's so much confusion because of the infiltration of pop psychology into our thinking. So we need to be on guard, don't we? What is the test of love? Is it feeling good about somebody? When you promise before God and witnesses in a wedding ceremony that you will love, honor, and I trust many of you also prayed or vowed to obey this man, could you have any idea of the cost of fulfilling those vows? Well, no, any more than we could have any idea of what the cost will be of fulfilling our vows when we make up our minds to be followers of Jesus Christ. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you give up your right to yourself. Imagine trying to sell that notion in today's world. Give up my right to myself. It's my body, it's my life, and I am going to do my own thing, and I am going to do what feels good, and I don't want to do anything that doesn't feel good. That's what the world tells us, isn't it? And you're not a real person until you've learned to love yourself. Well, I'm here to say that's drivel. That's rubbish. If I were to
try to learn to love myself before I try to learn to love my neighbor, I think it would be a full-time job, would take me the rest of my life. <laughs> because it's when I look most unflinchingly and steadily at who God is that I flinch when I look at who I am. And I don't find very much there that I would want to learn to love. God help us all. You know, when Isaiah had a vision of who God was and of his holiness, what did he do? He said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. He recognized who he was. And what about Peter? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I think it was in John Calvin's Institutes, in the very beginning of or the introduction to his Institutes of Theology, that he said the only way to get to know ourselves is to get to know God. And the revelation of what this self is is not going to be very encouraging. We then recognize our need for that fountain filled with blood. And this morning, Lars and I were thinking together and actually singing together, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, that's what Christian radio is about, isn't it? I don't have anything to say that's worth bothering with, that's worth all the work that goes into radio, all the people who have to work in order to make it possible for me to do just a little 15-minute program. Certainly isn't worthwhile you're turning on my program if I have no authority other, if I have no authority of my own. My only authority is the authority of the word. Now, you, as you know, if you listen to Gateway to Joy, you often hear Elizabeth Elliot opinions, and some of them are drivel. Uh, some of them are probably worth nothing at all. I try not to dish out my personal opinions unless I have some scriptural backing for them. And I'm always asking the Lord to correct my thinking and purify my desires and enable me to see things as God sees them. As Gordon Bell just reminded us in this passage of scripture, look at people the way God does. That doesn't come naturally to any of us, does it? So we begin learning to love by loving our neighbor. Then as we advance with the help of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, he points out to us that it's not enough to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's face it, we do love ourselves, we feed ourselves, we take care of ourselves, and I think what Jesus is saying is simply at least start with the minimum of giving your neighbor the break that you would give yourself. But then you go on and he says, love each other as I have loved you, and that means sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself, Jesus surrendered himself, Jesus suffered 
and Jesus set the example for us for all time of servanthood when he got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. The divine standard of love is the decision to regard another's good as my own. If Carlo had given his blanket to Kada, he would not have lost anything. He might have frozen to death, but so what? Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Don't fear him that kills the body, as if Jesus is just giving the back of his hand with all our fears for our mortal bodies and our possessions and all the things that this world holds. What does it amount to? Not a hill of beans. But he says, fear him who has the power to cast body and soul into hell. Now, so often I get letters from my radio listeners with their long, sad stories about their marriage. And I'm sure you hear me talk about those, some of those stories and try to point people to the only source of help. It's not Elizabeth Elliot. It's not even Ann Landers. <laughs> it's only the Lord himself who can sort those things out. But we do have some principles to go by in Scripture. And one of the things that I've learned from one of my many spiritual tutors is two very simple definitions of love, and both are necessary. They're two aspects. One is the intention of unity, and the other is concern for the good of the beloved. The intention of unity means that whatever I do, I am going to seek to be concerned about what is going to draw the two of us closer together. Authentic love, as someone has said, is wishing well to the beloved for the beloved's, not the lover's sake. I had a letter just recently from, what well, wasn't a letter, no, it was at my, the last conference that I was speaking at. During the question and answer period, one of the questions that came up was, my husband leaves his clothes on the floor. What am I supposed to do about that? And how do I handle the resentment that I feel? Now, the one thing that I do hope comes across in my radio program and in my books is that if Christianity doesn't make a difference from Monday to Saturday in your life, it's not authentic. Jesus Christ has got to make a visible, tangible difference in your life. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Never mind Sunday. Of course, he should make a difference in your life there, too. But sometimes we think we've done our duty and that's case closed. And we don't have to think about anything there, nothing religious, until next Sunday. So it comes down to ridiculous little things, like a careless man who drops his socks on the floor, and there they stay. Now, the husband wasn't there. I wasn't speaking to the husband. She's asking me the question, what am I supposed to do about this? Well, I asked a very simple question. I said, how long do you think it would take you to pick up all the clothes in one day that your husband leaves on the floor? 
Well, she thought it might take her 20 minutes. I thought, well, he must change his clothes an awful lot of times or something, but okay, suppose it takes you 20 minutes. Is that 20 minutes worth fighting about throughout your marriage, being a nag, making your husband uncomfortable? You are not going to change that man. You will not change your husband except by the grace of God, and the chances are very great that the more you talk, the less he's listening. And how many of you men know that's the truth? Four of you, thank you. So I said, that's my answer to the first question. What are you supposed to do about it? I would say, shut up and start picking up the clothes and putting them away, and don't point out the fact that you put them away. Just shut up about the whole thing. Question number two, what do I do with my resentment? What do I do with my resentment? What do I do with my resentment about anything? Did Jesus have any temptation toward resentment, do you imagine? Was he understood? Was he loved? Was he followed faithfully? Was he argued with? Was he scorned? Was he ultimately despised and rejected and captured and flogged and blindfolded and slapped and nailed to a cross? Love each other as I have loved you, he says. And as he hung on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So I said, I can't tell you anything to do with your resentment except to bring it to God. Bring it to Jesus, who has been tempted in all points, like as we are. Bring it to Jesus. Love is the intention of unity. By picking up your husband's clothes, you intend to make a more peaceful home and a happier marriage. How much is it worth to you? Love is concerned for the good of the beloved. Now, of course, this woman comes back and says, I think he should learn to pick up his own clothes. And who of us wouldn't agree with that? She can't make him. I can't make him. And the chances, there is always that tiny little chance that God might make him learn to pick up his own clothes if you do it. Maybe. You know, it says in 1 Peter 3, speaking of women who are married to men that are not being obedient to God, men who are not necessarily Christians, they may be won by the example of a quiet and gentle spirit. There's no promise that they will be, but they might be. And they are not going to be won by a nagger. And we all know that that's the truth. The intention of unity. A woman wrote to me and she said, we are retired, we needed a new vehicle, I wanted a nice comfortable car, and guess what my husband wanted? A truck. And it was, it was women's voices up here that said that. I heard them. And so she said, we sat down, and in, in a very civilized way, we talked about it over a period of days and weeks, and we went and looked at some cars and some trucks. 
And she said, I was just so upset with this stupid idea of a truck. She said, we had absolutely no need for a truck. And she said, we were going to be doing some traveling to visit our children. And I thought, what we need is a nice, comfortable car. And I tried to make my husband see the sense of this. But he couldn't see that. And she said, one day, the Lord really spoke to me and said, why don't you just encourage your husband to go ahead and buy a truck? <laughs> and she said, it absolutely changed my life. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. And so the next day when my husband came home, I said, honey, why don't we go out and look at some trucks again? And he thought I'd lost my mind. <laughs> well, she said, we went out and looked at trucks. And we went out the next day and we looked at trucks. I forget how many times they went out and they looked at trucks. And each day she would say, I think it'd be great to have a truck. You know, I mean, there are just all kinds of things you can think of that you could do with a truck. Why don't we get a truck? And she said, after about a week, he said, you know, honey, that really doesn't make any sense for us to get a truck. <laughs> he said, why don't we just get a car? Now, that is one illustration. That's not necessarily the, what's going to happen in your life, but it is one tiny but very important and significant illustration of the fact that when you let go, when you surrender, when you make sacrifice, when you are willing even to suffer if you have to drive in a pickup truck all over the country, <laughs> God may step in and do something you would never in a million years have been able to accomplish. You don't know what God has up his sleeve. Love is the intention of unity and concern for the good of the beloved. Now, a few months ago, I just happened to turn on the TV, and I believe that the word happened is in quotation marks because I'm sure God had me turn on that TV at that point. And some of you might think God would never tell anybody to turn on a TV, <laughs> but he just might, you know. The love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Well, my husband and I do have two tiny little TV sets, and they're both in places where you can't sit down to watch them. <laughs> this one is on my kitchen counter, so I was getting supper, and I turned on the TV, and here was a very earnest-looking man. I had no idea who he was. He was looking straight at the screen, and at the moment I turned it on, he said, I forgive him. Well, I was astounded to discover that I was watching a very well-known talk show by a very sarcastic host. And somebody in the audience leaped up, a woman in the audience leaped up, and she said, that's sick. She said, what they did to you was terrible. She said, for you to say, I forgive them, is condoning what they did. And you are being a codependent and an enabler, or something like that. You know, those phrases we hear all the time. And so the host said, so why do you forgive him? And he said, because it's the only thing I can do. Well, then a woman, the same woman, jumped up and she said, I don't care what you say, that is sick. She said, there is something wrong with your head. I think you've got a head injury. Well, it turned out that who I was looking at was Reg Denny, a man who, a truck, trucker who was beaten in the LA riots, beaten to a pulp, practically. And at this point, to my astonishment again, the host said, in his 
sarcastic way, he said, isn't that what Jesus told his followers to do? And Reg Denny said, yes, that's what he told his followers to do. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's why I did it. He said, I forgive him. I couldn't believe my eyes that this was on a major talk show. And at that point, a lovely-looking woman came onto the screen. And she said, I want you to know that there's some of us in this room who understand what Mr. Denny is talking about. I am the mother of the man who beat him. And she said, what my son did was wrong. It was a terrible thing. He deserves to be punished. But she said, in the courtroom, when the judgment was given, she said, I, Mr. Denny walked toward me with his hand outstretched. And she said, in two seconds, we were in each other's arms. That's love. It's not justice as the world sees it. Love goes way beyond justice. It's a new frame of mind. It is a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new act of creation. Now, if any of you happen to get the transcript of that program, I'm sure I haven't quoted it all exactly right, but the, the basis, the basic things that were said, I have quoted, I think, quite accurately. I'll never forget it the simplicity and the earnestness with which he looked at the screen and said, I forgive him. I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, at this point, another trucker jumped up and he said, I want to know why you didn't just keep going in that truck. He said, you didn't have to stop. He said, you could have kept right on going. And Reg Danny said, yes, I could have. I could have done a lot of damage with 80,000 pounds. But there were people in the street. And the guy said, yeah, but you got a club in the cab. I know, every trucker's got a club in the cab. He said, yes, I have. It's for testing tires. It's not for beating people. So there you have it. Visible Christianity. I had a letter just this week from a, from a man who told me that he'd heard about Christianity and he'd met a lot of people that called themselves Christians. But he said, I finally met an old guy named Frank Drown. Well, I happen to know that old guy named Frank Drown because he not only was a missionary in Ecuador, but he was the leader of, this, of the rescue party that went to search for my husband and the other four men who were killed in 1956. So that old guy named Frank Drown is familiar to me, and what this man told me in his letter was, Frank Drown was the first man I ever knew who did Christianity a visible demonstration of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. The test of love is sacrifice. Lay down your life for somebody else. The one woman was not willing to lay down her life to the extent of such a trivial thing as picking up the dirty socks. The other woman was willing to lay down her life and forget about having a comfortable car. Reg Denny was laying down his right to an apology. I don't know that he'd had an apology from that man. He might have. I didn't hear about it. But we all know what it's like to try to forgive somebody who has done something really bad. It's 
a sweet thing when somebody comes and says, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But I would suppose most of the time that doesn't happen, does it? And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who apologize. Is that what it says? He said, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we have to sacrifice the pleasure of self-vindication, the pleasure of the apology. Now, when I was a little girl, we, we prayed the Lord's Prayer every single morning in family prayers. That was the closing part of our family prayer. And for years, I guess it never even occurred to me to ask my parents what the word trespasses meant because I thought I knew. There were little signs on people's lawns that said, no trespassing. <laughs> so I thought it meant walking on people's grass. I never walked on anybody's grass. I was an obedient little girl. But I still think about that when I come to no trespassing because there are times when people have walked all over me. I'm that green lawn. And we all are very protective of ourselves and of our self-image and of being right. And more than once in my life, I couldn't tell you how many times people have said to me, you always have to be right, don't you? Well, I know what they meant, but on the other hand, I would like to say, is there anybody that wants to be wrong? <laughs> you know, I mean, we do want to be right. They were pointing the finger at at pride and, and an insistence on my putting my viewpoint. But if somebody walks all over you, Jesus says, forgive your, those who trespass against you. As, and we are asking God to forgive us in the same measure and no more that we are willing to offer to that trespasser. Will that be enough? Are you willing to take the same measure of forgiveness from God for your million sins, or however many there might be on your list, that you're offering to that one person who has perhaps done one terrible thing to you? But that's what the prayer says, isn't it? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. As we forgive that man who embezzled all the money so that your business went under as we forgive that person who owed you $10,000 and has no intention of ever paying it, as we forgive that woman who went off with your husband or that man who went off with your wife, irremediable things in this life, as we forgive those, all of them. The test of love is sacrifice. The test of love is suffering. Words which modern young people have hardly ever heard and which plenty of old folks don't want to hear. But I find it from Genesis to Revelation. Suffering. But Jesus links suffering with glory. His word links suffering with glory again and again and again. If you suffer with him, you will also reign with him. 
Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, I will not reign, I have not suffered. Well, I think he did before he actually died. But those things are linked, suffering and glory, and surrender. You remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. But if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. A total, unreserved surrender. Are you willing to surrender that one thing that you really don't want God messing around with? Now, I don't know what it is in your life. There may be some relationship, maybe not a marriage, but something else. And you are determined to stand on your rights and to keep your distance and not to reach out, not to give the blanket to the person who is shivering. You know what it is that God might be speaking to you about this morning. I have no idea. Perhaps it's a matter of sacrifice or suffering or surrender or service. And you know what it is. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe the one thing that you have been withholding has something to do with all of those. Desire is a sure way to destroy our own fulfillment, someone has said. If my attention is on my own good, no union with the other will be possible. Such egocentric concern locks us into the solitude of our own being. And I suppose most of us have known a bitter, angry person, such as we had in our church years ago. She was so locked into her own being, she was like a tiger in a corner. And you didn't dare get near her, or those claws were going to lash out. I have no idea what that woman was so angry about, but she was angry at everything and everybody. I've seen her get angry at a coat that fell off the, the pew in front of her when she was in church. She'd thrown her coat over the pew with an angry gesture, and the coat fell off, and there was another angry gesture when she put it back, and the coat fell off again, and she just hit the coat as though it were a person. And I thought, the poor, pitiful, locked-in lady. Her attention was on her own good. Egocentric concern. If we seek the good of the other, that's love. Parents, what is God asking you to do for those gifts that he has given you in children? Some sacrifice that perhaps you've been resentful about having to make. You singles, do you resent the fact that this is where God has you right now? Young women often come to me and say, I don't think I have the gift of singleness. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? And I would say, well, are you single today on this particular Saturday? Yes, well, then you have the gift of singleness. <laughs> That's God's gift. Give us this day our daily bread. Whatever God puts on the platter for today, that is the will of God. We either receive it or we resent it, but we can't necessarily change it. 
when the earthquake happened in California, I had a letter from a lady whose home was right one mile from the epicenter. And she said that when they walked into the house after the quake was over and absolutely everything in the house was smashed, there was a platter on the floor smashed to bits. And they had heard me say just what I've just said now, the day before. Whatever God puts on your platter. And she said her mother picked up the pieces of the platter and she said, well, God has put an earthquake on our platter today and the platter's all smashed, but we're going to thank him. And they thanked him. Lars had a phone call from one of the ladies that had been there. We had just been there two days before that. And she said every single piece of furniture in their house was turned over and every piece of glass and crockery was smashed to bits. Can you imagine the noise? Just, of the, just the noise, not to mention what it's like to go back into your house after that. The test of love is sacrifice, suffering, surrender, and service. May God help us to love him and to learn day by day with the people with whom we associate at work, at home, in the neighborhood, in church, to learn to love them as Christ loved us. This is how we know what love is. It says in John, in 1 John 3.16, Christ laid down his life for us, and we in our turn are to lay down our lives for each other. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.